Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 22, the book of Hosea, chapters 12 and 13. Well, we left off at Hosea 12.10 last time, or could be 12.9, depending on your Bible version. And this was when God was calling to remembrance just who He was and what His relationship was with Israel. And this was clearly necessary because Ephraim Israel's worship had become so confused and perverted over the centuries after the era when David and Solomon had ruled over a united Israelite kingdom a kingdom that eventually fractured into two soon after Solomon's death. And Ephraim, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom. Now Ephraim had come to look much more like Canaan than the Israel that had fled Egypt. They had, at least by the ninth century, incorporated Baal into their worship, although they maintained a supposed loyalty to Jehovah. By the 8th century, they had added calf worship, with the calves of gold being molded at the order of King Jeroboam to supposedly represent Yahweh. Now Ephraim had even gone so far as to regularly consult with and worship an angel called Bethel or the angel of Bethel. Well, in verse 10, God is making it clear that none of these <laughs> were Israel's God. Only the God whose name is Jehovah is Israel's God. And we would do well to remember that still at this point in history, Israel did not believe that Jehovah was the only God. Rather for them, Jehovah was one of many, which is why the name of a God is so important. And it was no different for Israel then, or for modern-day Christians and Jews as well. Just like for humans, a name is an identity, and an identity defines a being's attributes. As an aside, please never fall for the rather common mantra within much of Christianity today that the Allah of Islam and Yahweh of the Bible are the same God, just with different names. Never fall for that. That is a dangerous, it is a blasphemous falsehood, and it is repeated again and again. Allah is the name of the God of Islam. And this God's name and identity is totally different from the God of the Bible. Their chosen people are even different. The God of Islam's chosen people descend from Abraham's son Ishmael, who was rejected by Jehovah and banished from Abraham's family, while the God of the Bible's chosen people descend from Abraham's son Isaac. Now, when many centuries earlier Israel had made a covenant with Jehovah on Mount Sinai that he would be their God, they would be His people. 
It was under the Hebrew mindset that he became their national god, even though all other nations also had their own gods. This is why in the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, Ten Debar, the First and Second Commandments deal with this reality as the condition for the covenant with Israel to exist. And as a note, it's kind of interesting that the Christian version, the most common Christian version anyway, of the Ten Commandments skips over the first biblical commandment, making what is actually the second commandment the first. Okay, now here is the entirety of those first two commandments, taken from Exodus 20 verses 1 through 6. Then God said all these words, I am Adonai, or Jehovah, literally, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery, you are to have no other gods before me. You are not to make for yourselves a carved image or any kind of representation of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water below the shoreline. You are not to bow down to them or serve them, for I, Adonai, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for their sins, of the, for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but displaying grace to the thousandth generation of those who love me and obey my mitzvot, my commandments. The third verse of Exodus 20 says that Israel is to have no other gods before me. The word usually translated as before is all, all in Hebrew, and it means before in the sense of a pecking order, speaking of a hierarchy. An easier and better way to understand it would be to use the English word above. We don't find anywhere in the commandments that Jehovah says that there are no other gods. Rather, it is that for Israel, none of those gods are to be held above him in rank or worshipped in any manner in the way Israel was to practice their religious faith. Further, since all the other gods are typically symbolized by their worshipers using images of humans and animals, and thus little idols are carved to represent them, God orders no such symbols are to be used for Himself. No human, no living creature should ever be used as an image of Him. Ephraim Israel had violated every aspect of commandments 1 and 2. They had risen Baal up to be above, or at the very least on par with, Jehovah, and later their king Jeroboam fashioned two calves, bulls actually, as representations of Jehovah and proudly announced to his people, here is your God that brought you out of Egypt. Jehovah was reminding Israel that the covenant they had agreed to with him was an exclusive one. According to the terms of the covenant of Moses, the only God they were allowed to worship was him. Regardless of whether Israel believed there were many other gods. They had broken that fundamental condition long ago, and after 
an equally long time of warning them to repent, to honor that covenant, Israel got, only got off track all the further. Let's reread the final few verses of Hosea chapter 12. Open your Bibles, please, to Hosea chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 11. Hosea chapter 12, starting at verse 11. I have spoken to the prophets. It was I who gave vision after vision. Through the prophets I gave examples to show what it would all be like. Is Gilead given to iniquity? Yes, they become worthless. In Gilgal they sacrifice to bulls. Therefore their altars are like piles of stones in a plowed field. Yaakov, that's Jacob, fled to the land of Aram. There Israel slave to win a wife. For a wife he tended sheep. By a prophet Adonai brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was protected. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so the penalty for his bloodshed will be thrown down on him, and his Lord will repay him with an insult. Okay, God affirms something that all believers in the God of Israel and those who trust His Holy Scriptures must take to heart. What we read in the books of the prophets are indeed God speaking to His people through these prophets who are essentially God's authorized agents. In fact, these prophets are an integral and indispensable part of salva salvation history. They are at the core of God's saving will and plan. You know, it pains me, truly, to hear again and again from so many modern pastors that they are reluctant to teach the prophets from the pulpit. From both the aspects that they think the prophets are too complex, if not nearly unintelligible, in order for them to teach it, and because the, the prophets are too negative, they're too judgmental, they're too depressing in tone. Moses was called a prophet. He was called a prophet because he heard directly from God and then passed along to the people what God told him. So the thing that sets prophets apart from all others is that they hear from God and direct speech to them. Prophets are sometimes even given divine visions that concern what God is going to do. Sometimes as a warning to repent. Other times, like in Hosea, to tell the people of Israel why they're going to be punished and that they had better get to preparing for what's coming. Something that the ancient Hebrews understood, which Gentile Christianity in general doesn't, is that these words from the prophets, which come to them from God, contain actual power. These prophetic words are the catalyst to cause the actualization of God's speech to spring into physical, tangible reality. So in the case of Hosea, 
His words are incredibly dynamic as they literally set into motion the judgment that God has decided upon, as it, and He is in process of heaping upon Israel. The words have the same power and authority today and in the future. Just as they had in the past, so we must heed them or bear the consequence. We must listen. We must repent and change. And we must also prepare for what God says is surely coming to the world because no one and nothing is going to stop it. Bottom line. Israel has no excuse to lean upon, and neither do we. None of us. God's laid it out for us. He's recorded it in writing. He's revealed His expectations of us as His worshipers, just as He has told us the path that history is going to take. But, after telling this information to Israel in verse 11, suddenly Hosea launches into a diatribe against Gilgal and Gilead. Now the evil that is being addressed is the idolatrous religious evil, Ephraim's religious cult activity that has been occurring at those particular places. The difficulty in making sense of it is that whatever exactly was happening there in Hosea's day, which apparently was well known in Ephraim, Israel, is mostly lost to history. What we can know is that whatever it was, it was drastically serious in God's eyes, as the word chosen to describe it is avon, avon. And avon is usually translated as iniquity. Avon is the Hebrew word for the worst of the worst sorts of evil in a hierarchy of evil behavior. Saying that in Gilgal, bulls are sacrificed must have had to do with the way they performed it, and whom they dedicated the bulls to, because certainly sacrificing bulls is called for in the Torah. Of course, my estimation is that what is also offensive to God is the place where they made these sacrifices. The place. Proper ritual sacrifice, as prescribed in the Law of Moses, could only occur at one place, upon one altar, the temple altar in Jerusalem. Further, it could only be performed by Levite priests. Therefore, by definition, to sacrifice anything to Jehovah in Gilgal or Gilead was inherently wrong. Hosea says that these unauthorized altars and temples that Ephraim Israel had, had built in those places, and in other places as well, such as Dan at Bethel, they're going to be reduced to rubble. Why? They have no value. They have no value. They're worthless. And they are deeply offensive to God. The prophet Micah, Micha, speaks of this as well in Micah 1, 6, and 7. So I will make Shomron, that's Samaria, a heap in the countryside, a place for planting vineyards, 
I will pour her stones down into the valley, laying bare foundations. All her carved images will be smashed to pieces. All she has earned will be consumed by fire. And I will reduce her idols to rubble. She amassed them from a whore's wages, and as a whore's wages, they will be spent again. See, the thing to understand about improper worship to God is that not only does God not accept it, He also punishes those who do it. It's a great sin against Him. He doesn't just look the other way, even though our intent was maybe not to do evil. And yet, since we have the holy written word that tells us what proper worship amounts to, if we ignore it and go our own way, then is that not intentional evil? See, this was more often than not Israel's sin. Fully thinking they were pleasing God, but looking to the wrong sources to learn what it is that pleases and displeases Him. In the highly individualistic West of our era, church doctrines have been created or modified to often allow, even encourage, great liberties to be taken in our worship practices. Believing that, in a sense, each person has the right and authority to tailor worship to our own personal preferences. Now, while I do think that there is a measure of flexibility in how we can appropriately worship and apply our faith to the many situations we encounter, there's also very firm boundaries. The only place in the Bible, Old and New Testaments, where those boundaries are extensively and specifically laid out is the Torah. That's it. Further, as we learn in Hosea, how we imagine God to be in attributes and in substance can also be found primarily in the Torah. When Ephraim turned their collective backs to the Torah, they substituted the God they wanted for the God who is. They gave Jehovah animal and human attributes. They assumed they could worship more than one God, provided they also continued to worship Him. And they concluded that they could make images of Him that symbolized what they thought were representative of His person. For all this and more, Jehovah was about to eject Ephraim from the land of promise and bring down horrific destruction and death upon them. How do you imagine God? Each of you. How do you imagine God? Where did you get your information from to form your conclusions? From your own imaginations? Maybe from your rabbi or your pastor? From Christian books or movies? How about from your social circle? Friends and family? Is it from your long-held church or synagogue traditions and doctrines? Or is it from the Holy Bible, beginning with the Torah? 
Now, if you haven't drawn your image of God that stays firmly within the well laid out boundaries of the Torah, I can assure you, you have the wrong image in mind. And this willfully wrong image is what God calls idolatry. Which means that if you reject the Torah, you can't possibly know God's attributes. You can't know His laws and principles, so you can't properly worship Him as He demands to be worshipped. Just that simple. Improper worship brings on punishment. And I know that might sound severe or even harsh to some of you. But this is the essential core message of Hosea. I mean, much earlier in Hosea, we read this in Hosea 4.6. My people are destroyed for want of knowledge. Because you rejected knowledge, I will also reject you as priests for me. Because you forgot the Torah of your God, I will also forget your children. Well, verses 13 and 14 work together as a unit. In order to draw the history of Israel back into the subject matter by recalling the story of the patriarch Jacob. First we're told of Jacob's fleeing to Aram and then of Israel being a servant of sorts in exchange for a wife. Here both the terms Jacob and Israel mean a person. These are two names for the same person. The story of Jacob going north to find a wife is an often told one. He goes to his uncle Laban's house and spies his daughter Rachel. Rachel. In other words, Rachel was Jacob's cousin. And he wants to marry her. But since Jacob is, a poor, is poor, he has nothing to offer as a bride price, he agrees to serve Laban for seven years as a kind of a bondservant for the payment. Her father agrees to the arrangement, but in the marriage ceremony, Laban secretly switches out Rachel for her older sister, Leah. And Jacob accidentally marries a wife he hadn't bargained for. Laban, having no conscience about the matter at all, says that Jacob can still marry Rachel, ah, but this is going to require an additional seven years of service to him. The point and message that Hosea is presenting here is summarized in verse 14. By a prophet, Moses, Adonai brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was protected. So the first part of this verse uses the term Israel to refer to the nation of Israel, but when the word he, meaning Israel, is used next, he was protected, it points back to the founder of Israel, the person of Jacob, having been the protected one. The gist is that just as Jacob acquired a wife in exchange for being a servant to her father, Laban, and in the so doing Jacob expected that Rachel's father would honor the deal, so does God expect to be treated with loyalty as a just reward, so to speak, 
for having rescued Israel from Egypt through a prophet, Moses, and then ushering them through to the wilderness to a land that God had set aside just for them. James Luther Mays, I think, has an interesting thought about the inclusion of the life of Jacob again, appearing again at this point in this chapter. And while it is his speculation, it offers a, a likely explanation for this decision to just once again bring up the patriarch Jacob. And I feel it's always best to search for a historical reason behind most biblically reported actions because without doubt there always is one. These decisions and events in the Bible did not happen independently, they did not happen in a vacuum. Invariably, something concrete was going on in order for these Bible characters to think and to decide to do whatever it is they did. Mays writes this, in the Assyrian crisis, some circles in the nation probably turned to the Jacob tradition with its promise of the land in perpetuity as their theology of last resort. That is, as Israel was faced with the dire prospect, they were going to lose their land and their nation to Assyria. They began to believe it wouldn't and it couldn't happen. Because their founder, Jacob, was promised that this land would always belong to Jacob and his descendants due to Jacob's merit. Israel then was sort of depending upon Jacob as their rescuer. But in May's view, Israel ought not to have seen themselves in the light of the, their patriarch Jacob but instead in the identity that God had given them in their exodus from Egypt. An identity completely formed by the Mosaic Covenant, not by Jacob. It was Jehovah who performed Israel's rescue from Egypt. It was Jehovah who kept watch over Israel. So while Jacob's life was determined by him acquiring a wife, Israel's life was determined by a prophet, Moses. Hosea is urging Ephraim Israel to understand that while the Jacob tradition is certainly true, and it is a wonderful story of their beginning as a nation, on the other hand, their real identity and value lies not there, not there, but rather in their founding prophet, Moses, and in their God, Jehovah, most certainly not in those worthless cult centers of Gilead and Gilgal. Fortunately, as verse 15 sums it up, this is not what happened. Instead, Israel and their political and religious leaders went their own way, and it angered Jehovah. Not by one or two actions have they done this, but rather continuously and continually, for decade after decade after decade. 
Eventually, God had a little choice, but to allow Ephraim to wallow in his guilt, and then to suffer the devastating consequences he has earned for his collective self. A punishment was due, and a punishment it will be, because Ephraim and Israel forgot who they are. They shucked off their God-given identity formed by the Exodus and their wilderness experience, traded it for another identity of their own choosing. They abandoned the covenant of Moses in the Torah where this identity instruction that God gave to them was located. So now they've made themselves worthless because they refused to continue in their proper God-given identity, which is to carry out their divine purpose on earth and their intimate relationship with God in heaven. Okay, let's move on to chapter 13. Open your Bibles back up again. Let's read Hosea chapter 13 together. Hosea chapter 13. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He, had, he was a power in Israel. But when he incurred guilt through Baal, he died. So, now they keep adding sin to sin, casting images from their silver, idols they invent for themselves, all of them the work of craftsmen. Sacrifice to them, they say. Men, give kisses to the calves. Therefore, they'll be like a morning cloud, like the dew that disappears early, like chaff blown by wind from a threshing floor, or smoke that goes out the window. Still, I am Adonai, your God, from the land of Egypt, and you don't know any God but me or other than me, any Savior. I knew you in the desert in the land of terrible drought. Where they were fed, they were satisfied, and when satisfied, <laughs> they became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. So now, I've become like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I'll lurk by the road. I'll meet them like a bear whose cubs have been taken away. I'll tear their hearts from their bodies. I'll devour them there like a lion, like a wild animal, ripping them up. It is your destruction, Israel, although your help is in me. So now, where is your king? to save you in all your cities. Where are your judges, of whom you said, Give me a king and leaders? I gave you a king in my anger, and in my fury took him away. Ephraim's guilt has been wrapped up, his sin is stored away, the pain of being born will come to him, because he is an unwise son. The time has come, and he shouldn't delay there at the mouth of the womb. Should I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Should I redeem them from death? Where are your plagues, death? Where's your destruction, Sheol? My eyes are closed to compassion. For though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come, a wind from Adonai blowing up from the desert. Then his water source will dry up. Then his spring will fail. It will plunder his treasury, removing every precious thing.
Well, in this chapter, we see Israel's past and present combine to foretell their future. Now, because Israel refuses to stop sinning, even though God has patiently remained faithful, then their future destruction is assured. What's their sin? What is it? They have violated the first two of the Ten Commandments, which amounts to committing idolatry. Now, we've talked on a few occasions about the problem of humans dividing the Bible books into chapters and into verses, something which didn't happen until around a thousand years ago. The problem is that by doing this chapter and verse numbering, a new chapter can appear to be a break in the action from the previous chapter. Or a verse can appear to not necessarily be connected to the verse or verses before it. It, it happens often, so that this can confuse us actually. Now, such is the case with what is nearly always labeled as verse 1 of chapter 13. If one was inclined to make a chapter break, then this verse more belongs as the final verse of chapter 12 than the opening verse of chapter 13. Essentially, this verse is God's verdict in Israel's trial. So it belongs as the conclusion of this courtroom drama that plays out in Hosea chapter 12. Now, the key to understanding this verse is that this, in this rare case in the book of Hosea, the mention of Ephraim is, of, is as of Ephraim as his own individual tribe, one of the ten tribes that makes up the northern kingdom, not as the entire nation of the northern kingdom. Ephraim was by far the largest and most influential of all the tribes. And thus, during the time when Ephraim spoke and acted in righteousness, the other tribes paid attention and they followed suit. Ephraim was admired. Ephraim was envied because they were so large and powerful. However, when Ephraim turned to Baal worship and used his position of power over the northern tribes to join him, then in God's eyes, Ephraim fell from their superior position that God had vaulted them into and now has died. They aren't God's Ephraim any longer, so they're dead to him. Now verse 2 speaks of Israel's continuing sin and then says what that sin is. It is that they have cast images of silver. Now, this sentence is a little tricky to untangle, but it's important to do so. One of the several ways this verse gets translated into English makes it seem that God is upset over two separate things. Two things. First, Israel makes molten images, and second, they make idols. In fact, that's not really what's said. Okay. There is only one activity mentioned as the sin, not two. In Hebrew, the word for molten is masakah. And this is followed up with another Hebrew word, asabim, 
that literally means images. So it is but one thing that God is upset with in this verse, and it is with a molten image. A molten image. This is verified by what comes next when it when the verse continues with letting let those who sacrifice do what? What does it say? Kiss the calves. So this is speaking of the calf images. Those are the molten images. Now, why the inclusion of the word silver when the calf images have always been gold is a mystery. Except that very possibly there were multiple calf images and some were made of silver, not all of them were made of gold. I don't know. Now I touched on this matter earlier in our lesson and it's this. King Jeroboam ordered the calf images to be made. Ephraim Israel was already worshiping Baal, along with all the associated idols. And it seems by the time we reach the later parts of Hosea's career that Baal worship had actually been largely subdued. With Israel changing their focus from idols to the calf images. And the mindset seems logical. Without doubt, Baal was seen as a different God than Jehovah. It was never argued that Baal and Jehovah were the same God. And so when Jeroboam was coming into power, he seems to have instituted a religious reform agenda that included putting a lid on Baal worship. However, because the people were so used to and so enamored with worshiping images, he allowed that practice to continue by creating a new and different image to worship, a calf. And then declared it was not Baal, but rather it was Jehovah the God who led Israel out of Egypt. You see what I'm saying? Now admittedly, some of this is speculation because what I suggested isn't necessarily specifically called out in the scriptural record. However, earlier in Hosea, Baal was front and center, and now, many years later, what's it all about? The calf gods. The shift from Baal idols to the calf gods as the chapters fly by in Hosea is pretty obvious. When we parse the Hebrew such that the words are properly and literally translated, and then we can see this evolution occur, and we can understand the difference. Now I take the time to point this out, because Judaism and Christianity have over time also evolved in our symbols and in our icons, thinking that the newer ought to please God more than the older, and yet as I caution time and time again, symbols and icons are really dicey things to deal with. We think they're so simple. Well, Israel thought it was so simple. We all have our rationalizations, why our preferred ones are okay, but others aren't. But the issue should not be what we prefer. 
but rather what God finds acceptable or worse, offensive. Generally speaking, we find in the Bible that symbols and icons for God's people are actually played down, played down, and often devised against even though their use is not necessarily always an outright sin. Symbols are treated somewhat like the issue. Symbols in the Bible, I hear this, are often treated somewhat like the issue of vow-making, which according to Christ can be pretty dicey as well. So he recommends that rather than doing any vowing at all to do something or not to do something, we're just better off to make our yes, yes, and our no, no. Why is that? Because by avoiding symbols and vows, we can avoid the sins of an offensive symbol, and guess what? A breaking a vow. Just as God expects us to keep a vow, a vow because by definition all vows by his worshipers invoke him as the guarantor of that vow and so it is a serious sin if we don't keep a vow some symbols can also be deeply offensive to god but we're never quite certain which ones are and which ones aren't so it's probably better to mostly avoid them as they're not something god asks us to use and our worship of Him in the first place. We have a modern-day proverb that more or less reflects this same logic. We've all heard it. Discretion's the better part of valor. Besides, as is pointed out by this verse, any and every symbol is what? It's the work of a human craftsman. How could human hands possibly create something of a material nature that God welcomes or needs or in any way is representative of Him. As far as God is concerned, as the final words of verse 2 make clear, despite any insistence from the people that they do not think the calf images actually are God, but only representative of Him, he nevertheless sees their sacrifices before these calf images as sacrifices to the images and not to him. You can debate it with God if you want to. I wouldn't. That's a sure loser. Verse 3 introduces the punishment that is commensurate to Israel's sin, as it is spelled out in the covenant of Moses. The punishment is, Israel's going to disappear. That is, they will cease being recognized as a set-apart people in their own nation. Four different figures of speech are used to get this message across as to the nature of what's going to happen to Israel. They will be one, like a morning cloud. Second, like dew that forms early in the day. Third, like the chaff that is driven away from the threshing floor. And fourth, like smoke that comes out from a chimney. In each case, the item is there for a while, 
but it vanishes as quickly as it disappeared. All evidence of the existence of a morning cloud, the early dew, the chaff and the smoke are gone. The disappearance is total. There's nothing left. That is Ephraim Israel's destiny. Now we should notice that at verse 4 the narrative changes. It changes from Hosea speaking to God speaking an oracle. And he begins with something that is being hammered away at for the last many verses in Hosea's prophecy. His identity. God says, I am Yehovah your God from the land of Egypt. This is this particular reality of what's meant here is generally obscured in English Bibles because invariably they do not say Jehovah or Jehovah. What do they all say? Lord. Lord. The point is not that God is God. The point is that Israel's God has a name. His name is Jehovah or Jehovah in English. So, Israel going to any God by any other name is to go to a God that isn't their God. And to further connect himself to the Exodus and to the covenant of Moses, God says he is the God from the land of Egypt. Jehovah reminds Israel of the Ten Commandments by saying that they were told that they were to know a, no, no other God but Him. To know, biblically, means to have a relationship of allegiance and dependence. He was to be their exclusive God, and since He is their only God, then there can be no other helper, deliverer, or redeemer for them. This extends to verse 5, which is essentially an example of when He saved and rescued Israel. He was with them in the wilderness. He watched over them. And when God says, I knew you, to know has more or less the same meaning I mentioned a moment ago. God is saying that He was devoted, He was in relationship with Israel. Because a mutual devotion and a mutual relationship, well, that's the point of a covenant. In fact, God cared for Israel in a miraculous way. Because in the wilderness, they were in a land of drought where there was no water, or it was very scarce. And when we recall that the number of Israelites marching through that desert was probably somewhere around three million then the idea of providing water in a hot, barren desert for all those people, and what else? Their herds, their flocks, was something that only a God with immense power could do. As the oracle continues in verse 9, or rather, I'm sorry, verse 6, God says that despite Israel providing Israel with water, where there was none, and providing them 
with enormous quantities of food as well. That when he gave them such an abundance of food and they were no longer hungry, what did they do? They became self-satisfied. Their self-satisfaction led to pride. Their pride led to Israel forgetting Jehovah. You know, it's all too common among humans to be grateful and thankful when we are in dire need. Somehow, provision is made for us, but later as we're full or we're out of danger or healed and no longer in such great need, we go back to our old ways and we forget the ones who helped us. I've seen it countless times among believers, and I'm sorry to say I've done it myself. That in times of trouble we plead for God's help and rescue, and in His limitless mercy He helps us. But once our feet are back on the ground and the wind has again filled our sails, we lose interest. Whoever helped us, in Israel's case it was Jehovah, has effectively fulfilled their purpose for them and is no longer needed. I think this is what God is saying here about Israel's attitude towards Him. But now in verses 7 and 8, God says He is going to act in such a furious way towards Israel for their incorrigibly unfaithful behaviors that even included thanking Baal for what God had provided to them. He uses vivid metaphors of wild and fierce predators attacking their prey. God was not merely going to just lift his hand protection away from his hand of protection away from Israel. That's not all. He was going to set upon Israel to harm them. In a way, he goes from being Israel's protector and savior to their worst enemy. And while the attack upon Israel will not be supernatural, but rather the instrument of their terror will be Assyria. The attack will be deliberate. God doesn't tell Israel exactly when this is going to happen. Rather, it is likened to a lion laying in wait for an unsuspecting prey to fall into his trap. Further, the lion and the leopard usually carry their prey off to devour them at a time and a place of their leisure, extending the suffering of it all the more. The furious, the vengeful attack of a female bear who has lost her cubs is also used to describe God's rage. Bears will rip their victims to shreds with such power and ferocity that nothing can stop them. And when the revenge is complete, the scene is gruesome to behold. The lion, the leopard, the bear are at the top of the food chain. They are alpha predators. Nothing threatens them, so nothing stops them. Verse 9, God is blunt. Israel, this is your fault. This is your fault. You brought this all upon yourselves. The problem is that Israel's only helper 
Yehovah is the one who's doing the attacking and destroying. Therefore, there is no possibility of rescue or salvation for them. Israel has run to Egypt, then run to Assyria, then back to Egypt, back to Assyria again, looking for deliverance, completely blind to their predicament and the cause of it. No doubt they have also pled with Jehovah with the attitude that, well, any Savior will do. Nothing. I mean, what God is doing is carrying out a covenant curse upon Israel for their atrocity, just as it's listed in the Torah. Listen to Deuteronomy 32, verses 36 through 42. Yes, Adonai will judge his people, taking pity on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone, that no one is left slave or free. Then he will ask, Where are their gods, the rock in whom they trusted? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let him get up and help you. Let him protect you. See now that I, yes, I am he. There is no God beside me. I put to death. I make alive. I wound, I heal, no one saves anyone from my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as surely as I am alive forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and I set my hand to judgment, I will render vengeance to my foes and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood. My sword will devour flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, flesh from the wild-haired heads of the enemy. Well, we're going to stop here for today. I'm going to finish up chapter 13 next time and then move into the final, the 14th chapter of Hosea. Okay?